Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week I am looking at the February 2nd edition of the Standard. And the first piece in the section is a review of a book entitled The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power by Leah Wright Rigour uh, from Princeton University Press. Um, I think the, the book itself is, uh, uh, the subject of the book is self-explanatory, I suspect, um, uh, indicating uh, the fact that um, while there are black Republicans in America, I guess about 10% or thereabouts of the black vote, um, they're dramatically outnumbered by black Democrats, and the question is, how did this come to pass, and what can be done um, to increase the number of black Republicans if the Republican Party is so inclined? So I asked as a reviewer, Arthur Davis, who um, is a former congressman from, uh, Democratic congressman from Alabama, a black, uh, and uh, who became a Republican in 2012. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, addressed the Republican convention, and I think is a possible political candidate in the future as a, as a black, well, as a Republican. He would be, incidentally, a black Republican. I asked him to review the book, and he did so, I think, in uh, first-rate order. Um, it's an interesting review. He discusses um, the obvious historical fact that, uh, obviously based on the, the policies of the Democratic Party in the mid-19th century and the Civil War that um, uh, freed blacks after the war, um, uh, their allegiance was to the Republican Party for a couple of generations until until the time of the Depression when uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal began to peel them off and um, and in due course and that process by the way was was not a quick one uh, even as recently as as the 1960s um, Republican candidates would for president would get a, a substantial uh, percentage of the black vote, but it has changed in recent years, partly um, because of the emphasis of the civil rights movement since the uh, high tide of the civil rights movement, that is to say the emphasis in the 1970s and 80s on affirmative action and other things, and of course the probably the evolution of the South from a predominantly democratic uh, region of the country to a predominantly Republican region of the country. So the question is, um, what can the Republican Party do? Uh, and um, if they should do it, uh, would it make any difference? And he has a number of interesting um, points to make about in what direction the Republican Party should head, what kind of appeals it should make. Obviously, there are black Republicans, um, and there are a few, um, we might say, rising black Republicans who might have a great deal to do with um, the future of, of, of blacks within the Republican Party. I, I, I tried to illustrate that by using a, 
photograph of Mia Love, the freshman congresswoman from Utah, who shows all the signs of being a, a, real, um, a real leader in Congress. So anyway, it's an interesting question, interesting piece, and I think uh, readers will find it both uh, educational as well as prescriptive. That is followed by a review by Sidney Leach of another new book from Princeton University Press entitled Cowardice, A Brief History by Chris Walsh. Um, this is a 300-page book, which is neither very long nor very short. And you might ask, um, uh, well, presumably cowardice has been a, a human trait since um, humans began, uh, since humans started standing on two uh, legs, and of course the answer is that the author tends to concentrate on the idea of cowardice in battle and starting with with examples from classical antiquity, but also moving through incidents in American history up to and including the Civil War and, and, and um, World War One and, and such somewhat ambiguous things such as shell shock which emerged in world war one um, which was perceived perhaps at the time by some people as a form of cowardice but as we understand is a much more complicated reaction to the horrific uh, strains of modern warfare especially trench warfare at that time uh, in which case uh, shell shock affected even the bravest of the brave and so cowardice isn't really what we're talking about. But it's an interesting discussion of a complex and ambiguous and uh, deeply nuanced topic, but in a very um, a very accessible form, and I think our reviewer sums it up very nicely. That is followed by a review of a, uh, a book that interested me greatly, um, and it comes from the Library of America, series Library of America is, of course, that it's a series of books really grew out of a kind of parenthetical thought of Edmund Wilson that it's a shame that some of the um, uh, works of American literature that have now fallen into uh, obscurity and neglect, largely from the 19th century, couldn't be reprinted in some form. And it has, it has uh, taken the form of, um, there has been some of that, and some uh, hitherto neglected authors have been Revived, although now it's often a, a the Library of America is often a means by which relatively well-known writers are now uh, encased in in uh, volumes um, that will have their complete works in a couple of volumes. This has been true of Faulkner's novels, of Willa Cather's novels, even of some living authors like Philip Roth. Anyway, the book under discussion is by a far less known writer, but no less interesting, um, named Virgil Thompson. And the the book is entitled Music Chronicles, 1940 to 1954, and it's edited by Tim, pa <coughs> excuse me, Tim Page. Virgil Thompson is, in many ways, the sort of uh, writer that Edmund Wilson had in mind. Um, very prominent in his day. I, I wouldn't say forgotten today, but certainly neglected today. Uh, he was a composer, um, best known for um, a couple of his uh, 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 operas of the 1930s and 40s, um, Four Saints and Three Acts, which he wrote with, uh, he wrote the music while Gertrude Stein wrote the 
lyrics, um, The Mother of Us All, which was done in the 1940s. I think his last opera was done in the 1970s. Um, Virgil Thompson lived a long life. He was born the same year as Scott Fitzgerald and died, but died in 1989. But he's really best known um, as a music critic. He wrote voluminously about music. He was a he was a reviewer for the New York Herald Tribune, which was the the thinking man's newspaper of its day up until its demise in the mid-1960s. And Virgil Thompson had a great deal to do with, with uh, as an arbiter of, of, of classical music taste and also a, a promoter or critic of new uh, composers and new performers and conductors and so on. Um, it's very interesting. It's it's interesting in and of itself, and of course, it's a it's a window into the into the musical world of the nineteen thirties and forties and fifties, which we've uh, the details of which we tend to forget, and uh, reputations which are now towering were once uh, in their infancy. And so, um, and Algis Valiunas, who reviews it for me. Um, does a wonderful job of recreating that world and retelling some of those stories. That is followed by a review by Elliot Cohen, um, former State Department official and a uh, distinguished military historian and military theorist now at, at, at the Hopkins, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. The book is entitled Maximalist, America and the World from Truman to Obama by Stephen Sostanovich, published by Knopf. Sostanovich's thesis is a is that American presidents in the post-war world, post-war meaning World War II world, um, have, have fallen into two um, categories in terms of foreign policy. Uh, maximalists, that is to say presidents who were most interested in uh, uh, exercising and expanding American power in the world, and retrenchers who thought that some of the problems we face as a country are uh, derived from our being overexposed in the world. Um, I think we can probably agree, uh, critics and admirers alike, that President Obama probably falls into the retrencher um, uh, school, whereas his predecessor, President George W. Bush, would be defined as a maximalist. But in, in certainly in Bush's case, I, I think he probably came to office not necessarily as a retrencher, but not necessarily as a maximalist either, and events to some degree um, pushed him in a certain direction, which has been the case with many a post-war president. Um, Elliot Cohen and I think Stephen Sostanovich both agree that that we have tended to suffer in the long run um, with retrenchment, and that uh, in the American century, which began at some point and uh, is still not yet finished, um, the exercise and of American power has generally been very salutary for the world. Um, so it's a it's a an important book and a uh, fine evaluation by a real authority, Elliot Cohen. That is followed by a delightful essay by Sarah Lodge who is a British uh, uh, academic and professor of literature and writer, um, who is writing about a writer, um, speaking of the Library of America, this is kind of the British version, um, she's writing about a, a British writer named Gavin Maxwell, who lived between 1914 and 1969, 
um, he was a, a, a aristocratic uh, Scotsman, grew up in comfort, but led a kind of curiously peripatetic life and had a kind of um, he 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 had a, a a longing to withdraw from the from the. He, by the way, he he had a very distinguished service in Second World War. Was a much decorated combat veteran, but he was in love with nature and. Uh, uh, since he had the means to do it, he withdrew to the sort of um, wild um, coastal lands of Scotland and uh, kept otters as pets and was a very close observer of the natural world. Um, he wrote a book about his the, the retreat where he lived in in uh, the Outer Hebrides uh, and where his where he lived with his otters. Um, called Ring of Bright Water, which was a gigantic bestseller in 1959 when it was published. One of my earliest memories is um, uh, visiting the Brentanos in Washington, near where I took my piano lessons when I was a young boy, and I can still remember the phalanx of bestsellers that would be displayed either in the window or inside, and Ring of Bright Water was one of them. It was an enormous bestseller in the United States, um, answering some um, uh, hitherto unrecognized need in, in the souls of American readers. You never quite know with books like that which ones are going to suddenly uh, take off and which ones are going to sink like a stone unexpectedly. But Gavin Maxwell had quite a vogue in his time. And Sarah Lodge makes the case that he's not only an interesting character but a a graceful and interesting writer whose appeal, strong as it was in the late 50s and early 60s, is still recognizable uh, today. John Podhoritz's um, movie review is um, uh, longer than usual and with good reason because it's a review of American Sniper, which uh, John um, treats as the cultural phenomenon that it is and puts it, as always, in um, very astute uh, cinematic and historical perspective. I know that um, for those of you who've seen American Sniper or have not seen American Sniper, you will very much appreciate uh, John's uh, essay on the subject, which I think says, as has been said in other contexts, all there needs to be said on the subject. Anyway, that's our Books and Arts section for February 2nd. I thank you very much for joining me, and I look forward to talking to you about next week's issue. Until then, goodbye.